0: Hey everybody, welcome back for season two of the Broken Banquet podcast. This season, we've got more interviews with missionaries around the world, more interviews with authors who have written amazing books about missions, and more conversations about what it means for us to abide with one another. And yes, probably a story or two about Ashley taking a walk, eating food, or having drinks with someone who she now loves. We're so glad you're back, we're glad to be back, and we hope that you will enjoy this episode. Ashley, good morning to you. I think we're both really, really excited about this interview. We've been looking forward to it for a while. Uh, what a privilege to have Brian Fickert on the Broken Banquet. Brian, we are so thankful that you said yes and that we're going to get to spend a little bit of time with you this morning. So, Welcome to The Broken Banquet. Thanks so much. It's a joy to be with you folks.
1: We are so excited. I've been looking forward to this ever since um, I decided to cold call you on LinkedIn so that you could come on this great podcast.
2: (laughs) These folks need to get out more. This is exciting to eat. There's movies. There's restaurants. There's so many
0: options for it. I'm joking. This is fun. This is is as good as it gets for us, Uh, (laughs) but thank you. And I have to say right off the bat, I've got a feeling I'm going to be a little distracted through this entire interview because I discovered a year or so ago, um, as much as I love reading, my retention of what I've read does not reflect in any way how much I've read. And one of the tools that I've discovered that really helps me a lot is if I can get the audio version and listen as I'm reading, it just really makes a huge difference. Your voice is not at all like the voice of the guy who read your newest book on, on Audible. And so I'm not sure if you're an imposter. I'm going to trust you that you are who you say you are, but you do not sound like the guy who was reading along with me when I read Becoming Whole. There, there, there's a reason they don't
2: let me read that thing. So, so <laughs> you're, I don't really have a radio voice,
0: so we'll, we'll plow through. Well, uh, I don't think anyone great. on this podcast has a radio voice, so we're
1: good. we we did the same thing with Dwayne Elmer when Dwayne was because I've listened to all of his books and read all of his books, but but when he came on to speak, I was like, "You are not the same person that <laughs> that read these books." So great job, Will.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're excited to to talk to you and to talk about your books. I have to say, the excitement that I feel right now wasn't always there, and I'll explain to you why. Um, Ashley Ashley recommends that I read books that sometimes when I first start reading these books, I don't really enjoy a whole lot. Um, Freeing Congregational Mission falls into that category. Uh, I just felt like Hunter, Hunter Farrell was just, you know, punching me in the gut over and over again, those first couple of chapters. And, and to some degree when Helping Hurts, uh, you're, the, the book that you, you wrote before, Becoming Whole, and the reason why I felt that way is because I mean, from the time I was 15 years old, I was going on short-term mission trips. For the last 20 years of my life, I've been the director of a ministry in Central America that hosts short-term mission teams. And even though we've been really, really, really careful to avoid all of those criticisms that are so important and need to be brought up and need to be talked about, my concern is when people hear short-term missions and us... They're just going to assume that we're doing all of those terrible things. And so uh, I was honestly so excited reading Becoming Whole because of the way you talk about the things you talk about. I want everybody to read this book, um, and we're going to get into to a lot of the, the topics that you bring up in it, but I am way more excited about talking to you today than I would have been <laughs> <laughs> several months ago, to be totally honest, just because I felt like, man... Here we go again. You guys, got to you know, get a therapist. Or something, huh?
2: You're thinking, what, what this? This guy's got so much angst; <laughs> he needs therapy. And I probably do, but but that <laughs> we really want people to have um, a sense of hope and mm-hmm. sense that um, God is doing great things, and we get to participate in that. And so, believe it or not, I'm trying to be happy. <laughs> so. Uh-huh.
1: Well, no, I, I totally get that. Our local mission director was at the Beyond the Walls conference and she heard oh, yeah. you speaking about this for the first time. And so she's the one that brought back the book and said, you have got to read this. And I said, OK, great. So I did. And that's how uh, Will got the copy of it. it and I love the premise that you that you gave in the introduction that said, you know, when people read When Helping Hurts, they had one of three reactions of, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And just stopped everything cold turkey. Or okay, we've read this, but what do we do next? And then the others maybe just, just kept everything the same. Okay. So, so why did you write this book, *Becoming Whole*? Well,
2: thank you so much for asking that. You know, uh, after when *Helping Hurts* came out, and uh, my co-author and I were doing a lot of speaking in various places and so on, there's a pattern that repeated itself. People would come up to us and say, "You know, I'm uh, working in." Uh, some remote island in the Pacific, and uh, we've got problems with this particular kind of beetle infecting our crops. What do we do? Well, I don't know. And so, so there are all these there are all these very, very, very specific questions that, quite frankly, nobody in the entire world knows the answer to. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, how are we going to help folks um, with all of these specific things? And I realized there was really no way we could possibly do that. And I realized that what people really needed was wisdom, and they, they needed a, uh, more of a framework uh, than perhaps um, when helping Hertz was leading them with, and they just need wisdom to understand um, what is God doing in the world, how does He generally work in the world, and then, quite frankly, the freedom to explore, the freedom to experiment. Everybody, you know, kind of wants the recipe or the answer, and there isn't that. And we we, uh, wanted people to have a sense of wonder, a sense of exploration, uh, um, certainly pause because we can do harm, but also just a sense that none of us know exactly how to do anything. And so it's just a sense of improvising God's story in the world. But as we started to think about that, we realized that we in the West had kind of lost our way. We don't know what the story is. And so there's this irony that Uh, We're inviting poor people into our story, but we don't really know what it is anymore. And so it's just a mess. And so that's why we went back to ask the fundamental questions. What's the ancient story? What what, what is God doing in the world? And how can that inform our lives uh, in general, but also our efforts to help the poor more effectively?
1: And I want to thank you for that, because in 2013, I came to First Methodist of Shreveport. And the senior pastor had this vision of he wanted uh, a complete overhaul in missions and uh, hired me for the global part, hired Michelle for uh, the local part, and he wanted a mission partnership on every continent. He wanted to move everything from transactional to transformational, and that was for us to define and for the local and for us to be connected in such a way that all of the local nonprofits found a home with us. And we had to define all that so thank god for you and steve corbett for but you you did this video series with chalmers and uh so that's where we started of re-educating our 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 church and so now i'm excited because in january we get to have it's been 10 years and michelle and i have had a great great run of this 10 years of completely reimagining recreating all of these things and everything in mission for First Methodist of Shreveport. And now we get to come back 10 years later and say, let's re kick off again. What, what's the next 10 years going to look like?
2: Well, that's so encouraging. You know, uh, most of what I write is just a diary of things that God is teaching me. Like, I don't know anything really. I just listen to a lot of people, uh, read a lot. Uh, and then with my work in the Chalmers Center course, I'm getting some real hands on experience. But what I write is really a diary of what God is teaching me. And so there's a sense in which Becoming Whole is the next 10 years. What 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 have we learned since then? So we're on a journey together. And it, it's so it's so fun. And we continue to learn and to grow together. It's really great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Well, Brian, you talk about not knowing the story. And one of the first things that really grabbed me in Becoming Whole was how you start with the very beginning of the story with creationism, and I think that was probably the first like frantic text message that I sent to Ashley was, "Oh my gosh, he's talking about creationism. This is great." And those three relationships: how you know, God is a relational God, and the relationship between God and us, us and others, and us and creation. And one of the things that that Ashley and I go on and on and on about is the the relationship aspect of of what missions means to us and and abiding together. But would you just take a a minute to talk about those three, the way you you kind of divide up those relationships and how natural that is to who God is, but also to who who we've been created to be? Terrific. Yeah. You know, when we work with people who are poor, uh, we have
2: to know what kind of the, we might say the theory of change is, that's what kind of people in the nonprofit space would call it. We call it a story of change in our book. We have to know what's the goal and how are we going to get there? And it's sort of obvious, but so many of us plunge in the ministry, myself included, without a clear sense of, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Now, how are we going to get there? And um, the answer to those questions often comes down to really What is the nature of the human being? So when that woman walks into our church asking for help with her electric bill, or when we're working in uh, Haiti, um, as Ashley likes to work, uh, we have to understand what is the nature of the human being? What does human flourishing actually look like to understand what we're trying to accomplish? And, And to understand that, we go back to Genesis because that's where we see humanity being created. And what the Bible seems to suggest is that human beings are not just bodies and we're not just bodies that contain souls, we're actually relational things. Uh, From all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist in perfect relationship with one another. God is inherently relational, and at the heart of those relationships in the Trinity is love. Is a love, that there's there's mutual love going back and forth. Well, as beings created in his image, we are body-soul relational thingies. We're not just bodies. We're not just bodies that contain souls. We're body-soul relational creatures. And uh, uh, what happens to us relationally impacts us physically, our bodies, and spiritually, our souls. And so once we start to realize how relational God is and how much we ourselves are wired for relationship, that kind of reframes everything in terms of what the goal is. Many of us in the West think the goal is uh, greater income uh, for greater consumption. Well, that reflects the wrong anthropology, if you will, the wrong understanding of what a human being is. Human flourishing is actually to live rightly, to enjoy loving communion with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation. That's the goal. That's a completely different goal than the goal of Western civilization, unfortunately. And and quite frankly, it's often not the goal of the Western church. And then we believe also that God put, I'll take a breath in a second. We believe that God actually knew the right habitat in which to place this creature. He placed this creature, this body-soul-relational creature, in the perfect habitat for this creature, the Garden of Eden. And mm-hmm. so in the of Eden, the habitat, if you will, the greenhouse, the incubator, was the right one for this kind of creature to live in. And so my view is that poverty alleviation is really about, to some degree, replicating the conditions of Eden, because that's the habitat in which all of humanity can flourish. Amen.
1: Yeah. You make the point on page, I think it's 86, that- Oh my you quoting me from page- <laughs> <laughs> You know the
2: book better than I do right now. So what's on page 86?
1: It says that relationships are countercultural to the Western mindset. And and I think that's been one of my biggest uphill battles is it's yep. easy to sell a project to people. It's easy to sell a building thing. It's easy to sell, uh, we can go do this and make this happen. It's harder to sell a relationship to a middle, middle oh. class to upper middle class group of people and so trying to, yeah, try to teach them of this abiding relationship uh, with people in our church, with people in our community, and then with people on a larger scale in the world has been very interesting.
2: It's very difficult. And, and the truth of the matter, well, so the staff at the Chalmers Center call me Dr. Relationship because I'm kind of a relational theorist. I don't actually want to have any. And so so, so I'm good at talking about it, but actually... Living into healthy relationships is personally quite a challenge for me, and, and so um, my my intuitions, my um, predispositions, if you will, uh, are often in the wrong direction, and so I'm constantly having to remind myself of God's story. What does human flourishing really look like? How can I faithfully live into that? And it's not easy because all, uh, my pre, my kind of my presuppositions, the way I'm wired, my default tends to go in the wrong direction and, and then the, then I imposed on people who are poor It's it's really a mess. so, so <laughs> the good news is there's a better way of being in the world. there's a, there's a better way to be not just for those who are materially poor but for you and for me mm-hmm. and, and so uh, I think as we jump into good so many times we think of you know repentance or change or admitting that we're wrong as a negative thing but actually it's the pathway to flourishing. It's the pathway to healing. It's the pathway to getting better. And so we should like let go and jump
1: in because God's got something better for us. And, and I've said too, that I've, I, what i found, especially in these 10 years, is that it's through relationship that I've found the truest version of myself. That's that it. through the eyes of the other, I see who God created me to be. And that's, a way of becoming whole. Uh, I loved how you how you put that. As far as deep communion, when we have this deep communion with one another, we're naturally the most authentic versions of ourselves.
0: And and how sacramental that is. I, uh, anytime anyone mentions communion, my ears perk up because I talk about that week after week after week. When with the, the folks who come down here to be a part of what we're doing, is that all of it, everything that this ministry does starts with the table that we've all been invited to as equals and coming to that table in spite of our differences, celebrating our differences, learning and being challenged by one another because of the way that God has revealed himself to us in different places and different cultures and 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 making the effort to dig into that. And so there are several places that you you mentioned communion and man, that's that's my love language. So thank you for that.
2: Well thank you. Like I said, I'm still growing. You know, uh, a number of years ago, the Chalmers Center was trying to um, collaborate with some um, folks in uh, West Africa, in Benin, actually. And we were uh, about to enter into, quite frankly, a contract with a partner organization in Benin to do something together to uh, try to help people who were poor in Benin. And before, just before we signed the contract, the, the people in Benin said all right, we will sign this under one condition. And we said, what? And they said, if it doesn't work, if the initiative doesn't work, we have to still be friends at the end of this and agree to work together some more. I thought, oh my word. And you know, it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but at the the front end of it, it wasn't obvious to me. And the truth of the matter is, the partner didn't perform very well. They didn't. They got distracted, but all the money that we had um, provided to them was still in a bank account. They hadn't spent any of it, and so they said, "Brian, you know, uh, unfortunately, we were unable to proceed the way we had all hoped. But we haven't spent any of your money. Here's the money back. What's next?" And we were all still friends, and it was that just ministered to me that oh, this is about being on mission together. This isn't about so much about accomplishing something. And I was just so impressed with the emphasis they were putting on being in partnership in communion together across time as being the thing, as being the goal, as being the end in some sense. And it really ministered to me and taught me a lot.
0: I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying to get better.
1: Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So there's something else that, that comes up repeatedly in, in Becoming Whole. And forgive me, I can't remember right off the top of my head if this is something that you, you talked about as much in When Helping Hurts. But you, you talk about Western naturalism, evangelical Gnosticism, and, and even moralistic therapeutic deism, and how, just how wrongheaded headed they are and they're just not the gospel would you would you talk about that for a minute talk through those those terms that maybe you know not everybody is is familiar with in their daily vernacular oh i'm shocked that people don't walk around saying evangelical (laughs) offices of all day long (laughs) what's wrong with the people louisiana and coast they don't in costa rica either
2: (laughs) so again human beings are profoundly shaped by the stories that we're living into. The story of change, as we pursue particular goals according to particular means, as we live into those stories, they change who we are. And we become the kinds of people who pursue those stories. And then what we do is we default to those stories when we work with the poor. The way way that we uh, design our ministries, the way that we fund them, the measures of success that we use, the things we say and do reflect the default story of change that we're living into. And, and most of us, of course, are not even aware of what that is because, well, somebody once said, a fish doesn't know that they're in water because all they know is that environment and they can't see the water. And, and that's true for us as well. We're, we're often living into stories that uh, we think are the only way to be. And there's two false stories that have deeply impacted uh, many Americans. And then we tend to default to those stories when we work with people who are materially poor. And so the first one, as you mentioned, is Western naturalism. Western naturalism uh, is basically the story of the secular world uh, around us. And it basically says the human being is fundamentally a physical creature. We're bodies. And so because we're physical creatures, because we're just bodies, Uh, The good life, happiness, if you will, comes from consuming more things. And it's sort of like it's the American dream to some degree. It's got to have more stuff, right? And um, my my own field of economics, this is what we're all about. Uh, We call this creature homo economicus, really exciting name. Homo economicus (laughs) is this this completely physical, highly self-centered, completely individualistic consuming robot. Well, when we work with people who are poor, if we've been kind of conditioned or enculturated into that story, we tend to bring that story to bear on them. And so we say to ourselves, well, what poor people need is more stuff because happiness comes from greater consumption. Well, there's two ways to help poor people to have more stuff. One is give them things. We all know that can create unhealthy dependencies. Or we can help them to earn more, empower them economically. And of course, that sounds better to us. In some ways, it is. Let's empower them economically. Let's give them education. Let's help them start small businesses. Let's help them uh, to thrive so they have more income. When they have more income, they can buy more stuff. And then they can consume more. And so it's either give stuff or help people earn more stuff. Well, the problem with that is that if you look at the United States or Western civilization, we've got the stuff. It works. The story works. Economic empowerment works in terms of increasing incomes, increasing wealth, uh, enabling us to consume more, but we're not flourishing. Mm -hmm. I I mean, most of the listeners on this program must have some sense that something's going terribly wrong in America. Our families are falling apart. Our communities are falling apart. The political process is a disaster. Um, Self-reported happiness of Americans is on the decline. Anxiety and depression have been rising since the 1930s. It's not working. We've got the stuff, but we're not flourishing. Well, why is that? It's because we're not actually just physical creatures. We've created a world that's the right world for Homo economicus, but it's not the right world for a body-soul relational creature. And so it's like we get up every morning, we live in the wrong habitat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the right habitat for us. So that's Western naturalism. I'm going to pause there because that was a long answer. We haven't gotten to evangelical narcissism yet. Do you want to unpack Western naturalism anymore?
1: Well, I will. I'll say this, and I was going to maybe come back to it later when we were talking about flatlanders. But a, a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching on Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And the, the story that I ended with, the example, was Pastor Mongerard, who lives in Lakai, Haiti, his first trip here to the United States in 2015. Uh, we had a great week together, great week together. As we were driving around Shreveport, though, he kept pointing out these big structures and says, what are those things? And I said, they're storage centers. And he said, right. what? And he's, I said, well, they're places where people keep the things that don't they don't have room for in their house and he said so do you go visit them on the
0: weekends
1: (laughs) when i and i and i so when i dropped him off at the airport the last thing he said to me was ashley we love you guys so much this has been a great week but i'm gonna pray for you so much more we may have Economic poverty, material poverty in Haiti, but holy cow, do you guys have spiritual poverty here? It's true. It's completely true. Yeah, in such
2: a different world. We're not wired for this, and and, and what's the problem is, is that and I, uh, on the one hand, it all looks very successful, right? So we do have. I mean, look, uh, I'm sitting right now in um, Dallas, Texas. I live in Chattanooga, but I'm traveling right now and I mean my word this is one of the richest cities in the world I mean the stuff is everywhere what people aren't flourishing people aren't happy and and what's crazy is we're exporting this story to the world's the process of globalization and and, and it, hear me I like capitalism I mean I like markets I mean I'm really get a kick out of them I study them if I'm visiting anywhere in the world I go to the marketplace I like it but you know there's something gone wrong with Western-style capitalism because as, as we spread this to the rest of the world through the process of globalization, what's happening is a very similar story. As the as places like India and China adopt Western-style institutions, those institutions do foster economic growth. They do; they work, and as a result, people's incomes go up and material poverty really plummets from. Uh, 1990 to 2015, a period of 25 years, the percentage of people living below the global poverty line of $1.90 per day was reduced by 50%. That's one of the greatest achievements in all of human history. And I'd like to tell you this because the Chalmers Center was so effective. That's not why that happened. It's because the institutions of capitalism really do promote growth, and growth really does give people uh, more incomes. And that really does enable them to consume more. There's, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story. But we're also noticing that in the very places where economic growth is happening, anxiety and depression are on the rise. There's something wrong with the story. There's something wrong with the kind of culture, the way of being in the world that we have in the West, they are exporting to the rest. And they're experiencing both the same... Uh, um, Positive things that we experience from it, but also the same negative things that we experience it, from it. So, we need a different story. So, evangelical Gnosticism. Let's get to that one. That one's so, so everybody on this podcast so far is going, Yeah, those Western naturalists, those secularists, they're a bunch of losers. We know better. Now, we're going to get closer to home. My, my mm-hmm. primary spiritual gift is offensiveness, by the way. Some people love <laughs> joy, peace. I got lending people. So here we go. What the Western church has largely done is adopted an approach that says, Western naturalism isn't true. We're not just bodies, we have souls. But the way that we've done this is we've sort of thought of the soul as kind of being tacked onto the body, or you might think of it as, think of a cup that contains water. The cup is like the body, and the water is like the soul, and so the cup contains water, the body contains a soul, but they're not actually integrated. And then what happens is that uh, at death, uh, we say that the soul, uh, if one is a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, goes to heaven and floats around for all eternity in some sort of disembodied ghost-like state. I don't even want to be there, to be honest. <laughs> it's its not that attractive. It's better than the alternative, but it, it's I mean, I like stuff. I like eating Thai food. I like the Green Bay Packers. I like my body. I like living in an embodied existence. And so it's kind of hard to get excited about floating around like a ghost for all eternity. But, you know, again, it's better than the alternative. Well, we don't really have much of a story for the body in in Western evangelicalism. We don't really have much of a story for this life. It's all about getting the soul to heaven. So what happens is we get out of bed on Monday morning. We're not sure what to do. We, we, we've trusted in Jesus. Our soul is going to heaven. Well, now what? So here I am. And, and I'm in this world. I'm in this body. I'm living Monday through Saturday in this world. What am I supposed to do every day? And we don't have a bunch of a story for that. So most of us, uh, well, we either become pastors or missionaries to do the spiritual thing, or we default to the only story we know, the story of Western naturalism, the story of the American dream. So we work, we go to school, uh, we get an education, we work really hard, and we earn incomes to be able to buy more stuff. So it's kind of like um, a baptized American dream, if you will. Uh, it's live the American dream, work hard, uh, consume more, live your best life now, Oh, and your soul gets to go to heaven and float around like a ghost for all eternity. So it's a, it's a separation of the body and the soul. It's a separation of spiritual mission from physical reality. Uh, It's a mess. And what happens is that because we're living like the world Monday through Saturday, we are also experiencing the loneliness, the loss of relationship, the uh, increased anxiety and depression that the world is. Mm -hmm. And so we need a better story, a better story. So unfortunately, we then impose that false story on poor people, the way we design our ministries you look at most poverty... Folks, I'm speaking in outrageously broad strokes right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you look at um, most ministries to the poor that are created by evangelical Christians in the West, they will look a lot like the programs of the world, but we have a little bit of evangelism that we tack on to get the soul to heaven. So Mm -hmm. you either give poor people things and then sort of tell them about Jesus to get their soul to heaven, or you uh, empower them economically and then tell them a little bit about Jesus to get their soul to heaven. But Jesus isn't central. He's kind of this thing that we use to get our soul to heaven, but he doesn't really impact the material realm. He doesn't impact life right now. He's not really relevant. We have that sort of physical-spiritual dichotomy, that sacred-secular dichotomy that shows up in our work with the poor. And it's a mess.
1: Yeah, instead of Jesus being like the center, with everything else growing around it, it's just one of the boxes. That's it. That's
2: it. And we often, you know, we all have this problem. I, so, so I'm very competitive. I like sports. Well, when I'm at, when I'm watching one of my kids uh, playing basketball, you know, I've not always been the greatest sport in the crowd. You know, it's you kind know, of like you know, I trust in Jesus, and I kind of leave him outside the ticket gate, and I go in. And I just plunge into the competitiveness of the sport. I'm yelling at the referees. It's, it's, it's got, I've got my life compartmentalized. And Jesus doesn't get to come into the sports part. Now I'm trying to get over that. But we do this. We compartmentalize. Christ is really Lord of the
0: whole thing. And it changes every dimension of, of, of reality. So would it be fair to say that sort of what's the problem with Western naturalism, evangelical Gnosticism, moralistic therapeutic deism is that they actually draw us away from those sacramental relationships that we were created for? They're not just a barrier to them, but they're actually counterproductive. They pull us in the wrong direction. Well, in some ways, it's a little messier than that. I mean, I mean, is it
2: better to trust in Jesus to get your soul to heaven than to not trust in Him to get your soul to heaven? Well, yeah, it's better. Yes. We often live in ways that are very fragmented, that are not for wholeness. Um, we, the individualism in Western naturalism, the individualism in Western evangelicalism, you are correct to some degree pull us away from a more relational way of being in the world. When I was growing up, I used to read a Christian magazine that that um, I loved it. But the, imi- the image on the front of Christianity was, you know, some teenager sitting on a rock by a pond with a duck and his Bible in his hands. And, and, and so that's good. You need to go out on the pond with a duck and the Bible once in a while. Jesus retreated. But the image was me and God On an island. It wasn't about Mm -hmm. community. It was about a very individualistic understanding of salvation, of what life meant. And I think that that's done a lot of harm to me. I I, I tend to be alone a lot. I tend to withdraw from people
0: instead of plunging into deep relationship. Mm. I'll tell you, I think one of the other messages that I sent to Ashley as I was reading this was, and especially thinking about what we've just been talking about, was how easy it is not to think about missions in real deep theological terms, right? To just kind of keep it on the surface, sign up and go and go home and we're good. But how, how easy that makes it to A, walk away when we're dissatisfied with it, and B, or B, distort what it is that we're doing into what we want it to be. Totally. So, holy. so okay. So, how then does Ashley make a conversation like this with these big words and all of that? Like, how do you make this make sense to you know <laughs> churchgoers that that are interested and want to know and want to do better, but maybe aren't accustomed to thinking about something like? community outreach in terms of moralistic therapeutic deism, right? Right. How do you do that? Well, I keep trying. I actually
2: think that we're at a very teachable moment right now, potentially. There's tremendous dissatisfaction in America. There's tremendous dissatisfaction in the church. And so some of the posture that we might have had Oh, I don't know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, we were a little more confident. I think we've lost some of that confidence. I mean, even the name of, your, of, of this podcast, I haven't delved into what you're thinking about there, but I, I can imagine it's, we're broken. It, it's, and I think everybody kind of knows it right now. And so I think we have a very uh, great opportunity. People are lo- uh, longing for community right now everybody's doing this. And so I often, when I'm speaking to people, I will say to them, why was COVID so bad? What's the problem? I still had a job. I still had an income. I was still able to consume. And then I'll, every the audience will immediately say, well, we were lonely. Well, exactly. And so right now, that, that that answer to the question, what was wrong? When people said they were lonely, we were losing relationship with each other. All of a sudden, you've got the doors wide open. We've been living into the wrong story. And, and, uh, it's not Western naturalism. It's not evangelical Gnosticism. It's a relational story. You could all feel it, can't you? And so it's a teachable moment. And, and so I'm actually optimistic because I think, people are more open to this message than perhaps we would have been before. I actually believe the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. And then point people back to scripture. You know, it's so interesting. I know I said a few minutes ago, I think poverty alleviation is is primarily about recreating the conditions of Eden. And everybody's going, what is he talking about? Well, the truth is, that's the grand story of scripture. Mm -hmm. Great grand story is, we were, uh, we, we dwelt in God's presence in the habitat of Eden. The fall happens and we're cast out of that. But the whole biblical narrative is actually about how do we get back to the dwelling place of God? And we haven't communicated that very well. I was raised in the church, I never heard this. But if you start to look for it, it's everywhere in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Uh, David in the Psalms, Psalm 27. Uh, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may pursue the American dream and have all this. No, he says, I I, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. The whole narrative of Scripture is about this. And if you look at Revelation 21, uh, which gives us a picture of what it will be like when Jesus comes again. Uh, it's not a picture of floating around like ghosts. It's a picture of a new creation a new heavens and a new earth where we, where we live as fully embodied creatures. And at the center of it is the dwelling of God is now with people again. It's Eden restored, not in the form of a primitive garden, but in the form of a flourishing, flourishing culture, but whose conditions are right for living in right relationship with God's self, others, and the rest of creation but it starts with God dwelling with people again. That's the story. It's Eden restored. And so at one level, it's crazy to think that that's our mission is to to seek the restoration, but that's Christ's mission. I get to jump into the flow of what God is doing in the world, and it works because he makes it work. And so I'm very hopeful, not because I think we're doing so great, but because we're not. (laughs) And I think, or teachable, and we can dive into a better story.
1: Well, one of the things you you quoted was that uh, we are Flatlanders, that we are these two dimensional creatures. Are we're living two dimensional lives in a three dimensional world? And you want to break that apart? What Flatlanders are? You do it better than yeah. I could do it. Yeah. Uh, well,
2: uh, it comes from a, a story about a world of people who uh, believed that their world was two dimensional. And, and uh, you know, there are a number of um, brilliant philosophers who are communicating this in far more sophisticated terms than I can right now. But the basic idea is we don't really uh, recognize the spiritual dimension. And so we live our lives as though uh, it's simply the material realm. And you now most Christians would say that's not what we believe, but but the way we live and i'm I'm the front of the line on this this is where the um this idea of evangelical Gnosticism comes in. Gnosticism saw a separation between the spiritual and the physical most uh, western Christians we worship God on Sunday there's the spiritual activity but that's somehow divorced from the material world around us
1: mm-hmm. they're getting a the box on us um, yeah
2: we box us again so in uh, a real easy example so um when I get sick, what do I do? Well, I, um, I go to the doctor, and then the doctor gives me some medication. And if that doesn't work, then I go to a different doctor. And after I've seen 15 doctors and 35 specialists, I go, oh, gee, maybe I should pray about this thing. Well, <laughs> you know, medicine is good, but we I might have thought to pray to the creator and sustainer and reconciler of the entire cosmos to make the medicine work or even to do a miracle. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to live in a very sort of naturalistic way. Uh, I do an exercise. I, I teach at a wonderful Christian college called Covenant College. And look, I'm out in Georgia, and every semester I do, a, I do an exercise with the students. I say to them, they're usually freshmen and sophomores, uh, what should you do to get a job after you graduate? Well, this is what my students will say, and these are godly young people. These are great kids raised, most of them raised in Christian homes. I said, what should you do to get a job? They'll say this. They'll say, you should study hard in college. You should uh, get your homework done on time. You should major in engineering, not philosophy. You should uh, write your resume well. Uh, You should use your parents' connections to get a job. Not a one of them ever says we should fall on our knees and pray to the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. Help us find a job. It's that dualism. It's, and I have it in my life in spades. It's so, in, in part of where you can really see it is when you're overseas in Africa, Asia, or Latin America, they're coming out of a different worldview in which they believe the spiritual and the physical are deeply integrated. Mm-hmm. And so they pray like crazy for everything because they believe that Christ is actually active in his world. <laughs> I was once working in a, in a slum in Uganda and, and um, I was working with uh, some Christian folks there. And one of the Ugandans looked at me and said, Uh, have you been fasting? I'm like, that's somebody else's spiritual gift. I have the spiritual gift of eating at the banquet, right? And um, she said, you haven't been fasting about this ministry? And I said, no. And she said, you're not really serious about it. So for her, the whole (laughs) thing. So she she was just saying, you're not calling on spiritual
0: resources to help us. It's all the mechanics of ministry. So for a a pretty long time now, I've been living in and and immersed in church in a part of the world where that third dimension is very much a reality in their daily life. And I think one of the most exciting things for me when we're hosting visitors is seeing how they respond to that when we're worshiping together and, and feeling... First, witnessing how that that sort of freedom to experience the the movement of the Holy Spirit, and then the ones who are willing to go a step further and actually open themselves up to that, which is it's it's an incredibly I was going to say unnatural. It's actually incredibly natural. We've just been we've learned really well how to not do it, but if you'll if you'll allow yourself, I know for a fact that when a lot of people go home that's what they take home with them. And so when I think about all of us coming to the table and the gifts that all of us bring to the table, yes, our partners in the United States have lots of material resources that we don't have here, but there are a lot of resources from that third realm that totally. I'm so glad that people get to to at least witness and experience when they come you know, to be a part of this. So- that's I was it. thankful that you you included that so uh, so so much in the in the book. I love that. I love. There's a better way of being. There's a, there's
2: a a whole uh, way of being in the world that um, is better, and we can press into that. And part of how we do that, as you suggested, is by uh, linking arms with our brothers and sisters around the world and listening well to them. Really? They had. Have- bucket loads of wisdom and experience, and often a much deeper spirituality than at least that I have. And so there's just tremendous resources out there that God could bring to bear on us to heal us.
0: My wife is Costa Rican, and you couldn't find two people with much different growing up experiences than the two of us. And One of the things that has always amazed me about her, because she grew up in that environment, in that church environment, and it is not only a natural gift, but it's one that she has nurtured her whole life. And so, I mean, I can try, but I'm not real good at it. And for her, it's like breathing. And it's just, I mean, I just kind of stand back in awe sometimes at this, sort of intuitiveness and sensitivity that comes along with that and what an incredible tool that is for how she has been called into ministry in this community and the things that she is amazing at are things that I would be horrible at and it's because of that. I'm good at some other things but the things that she's really good at I could not be as good at as she is without that piece that's just it's just such a a reality for her we've developed different muscles than we've developed
2: because we've been working out in a different in, in a different kind of system
0: and in, in world so to speak we just you do know, leg day every day that's all we do is legs that's it
2: <laughs> i love that but you know um that I, I agree with everything you said i i do think that over time we can start to develop other muscles yeah. we, you know um um it's slow it's hard right Tim Keller has a wonderful book on prayer mm-hmm. and he gives some tips in there and some guidance. And, and I have found that over time, over long periods of time, I'm getting a few muscles that I didn't have before. Right. And so we get to, we get to become more whole. It's the, it's so much fun.
1: Right. You have to retrain our brains completely. You? Will I want to consider something a win because you know how highly competitive I am. Um, I want to consider this interview a win so far because Brian has mentioned listening, and that's one of the things that we harp on on every podcast. We've talked a lot about loneliness, which is something that comes up in every single conversation with every mission partner, missionary that we've talked with. Um, And now let's move more into relationships. You spend a lot of time in the middle of your book about relationships.
0: and I want to, so now it's my turn to read from the book. I'm, I'm going to quote you now. This is from page 152. Like, uh, oh, I okay, can well, this part. Right. Okay. I know. Well. Here's what it says. <laughs> Human beings are designed to know one another deeply and to love one another as much as we love ourselves. Our relationship to others should reflect the love of God, the same love that exists from all eternity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This love is what ultimately overflows and is manifested powerfully in the sacrifice of Christ on a cross for us. In our fallen world, this love now normally requires identification and sacrifice. God so loved he gave. Like Ashley said, we talk a lot on this podcast about healthy relationships. That's what we really are sort of goal if we have a goal is to help people develop healthy relationships with their partners. So there's a question that I want to ask you, if you'll just bear with me, because it's going to take me a minute or two to sort of set it up, but I really would like to hear your your thoughts on this. When Ashley comes to Costa Rica and brings a group of people from her church to spend time with us, during the time that they're here, we're going, to, we're going to worship together on multiple occasions with their brothers and sisters here in Costa Rica. A lot of the people that are going to come with Ashley have been before. So when we're doing that, they're going to be worshiping with people that they, they already know. Uh, we're going to share a lot of meals together with one another and have fellowship time. Anyone who's had a baby since the last time Ashley was here, they're going to bring the baby so that Ashley can see the baby and, and the other folks who've been before and you know share that, that joy together. We have a daycare center here at, at the Missions and Ministry Center, and so they may spend a couple of afternoons hanging out with the kids at our daycare. They're not going to do any programming. We've got a full staff here. They take care of the programming, so we don't need that. They're just going to have fun with the kids. We have a counseling program here, and obviously, we don't need a whole bunch of volunteers to come in and sit in on counseling sessions. But they'll have a the time to visit with my wife Yolanda and Priscilla, the psychologists who work in the counseling program, and hear about the things that that they're doing in the community. Right now, we are helping a church that it was it started as a house church six years ago, that now has grown to the point where they had like eighty people coming to worship in a little rented space in their community. They've bought a piece of property and reached out to us to see if we could partner with them and help them actually build a a proper worship space. So we may go spend some time on the work site with them helping to build this church. And our hope is that at the end of the week, when it's time for Ashley and everybody to go home, that they are encouraged and and energized, um, that they've experienced maybe some of that third dimension in a different way and also that the people here that they've spent the week with are also encouraged and energized, and that through being in this kind of relationship with one another, everyone's needs are being met. We're not doing poverty alleviation. We're not doing disaster response. We're not doing economic development. Can you help us think of something other than mission trip that we should call this? Because I think- We need to acknowledge the fact that there's this giant umbrella called missions, and there's a whole bunch of really different baskets that are underneath that umbrella. And like I said at the beginning of the interview, one of my frustrations for a while now has been, I feel like we get lumped into a basket that we don't belong in, in part because we just haven't done a good enough job of talking about this, but also because people's imagination is really limited. Once they hear missions, you know, when Ashley or any other team leader announces to the church, we're going on a mission trip, the first question that they get asked is, what are we going to do? Because the first thing that's coming to people's mind is construction work. What are we going to build? And I'm trying really hard to get people to actually, the first question to be, what are we going to be? And you talk about at the very end, and then I'm going to shut up, but on page 156, you said, our being precedes our doing." And that is, if that's. oh my gosh, if I could tattoo that on my forehead and get away with it, I would, because it has to start with the relationship. Everything we do has to be a fruit of the relationship, because if we get that backwards and if the doing precedes the being, then we've completely redefined the relationships in an unhealthy way. So back to my question, what do we I- call this? Go ahead, Right.
1: Brian, I was just gonna say when he got to that part in the book, all of a sudden I was a genius for being for giving him this book. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, anytime she can recommend something that someone has written that agrees with what I already think and say, we're good.
2: My entire measure of a person's moral character is whether or not they retweet my tweets on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> they, them. they are close for the Godhead. Um, so Oh my word! There's so much to unpack there. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's terrific. The idea that being precedes doing is pretty much everything, and we really don't get this. And I'm the worst offender by far. Um, But it's really important because this is the way that we're actually wired to be. You know, if you think about again, we're, we're supposed to be reflect. We're supposed to be image bearers of God. And and so to be who we really are, we have to, to some degree, reflect the nature of our God, right? Well, from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist in deep community. And then out of that, they create the world. Mm -hmm. But they were hanging out for a long time, (laughs) a really long time, like just zillions of years before they did anything. And so it's out of the being that the doing happens. If, if you look at, um, go back to Genesis 1 again, uh, God gives Adam and Eve a command to be fruitful and multiply, to increase in number, to subdue the earth. He gives them a task to do. That's the relationship to creation. But that task is preceded by deep communion in God's presence and with one another. So again, the the foundation for the doing is the being together part. W- without that, um, all kinds of things go haywire. Because w- w- what happens is we start to do not out of uh, service to God and others, but out of self, self-promotion, mm-hmm. self-service, because we're not doing it out of deep relationship with God and others. And so it goes haywire. And that's what's wrong with Western civilization. We're all workaholics because we're trying to, what well, either just earn more stuff for the sake of consumption, or we're trying to prove our worth, prove our value. But the value precedes the work. We're valuable without work. We're valuable because of who we are. And so it's just this. I know that's a bit abstract, but but it's actually really central. Right. And, and I grew up in a rural, a rural Wisconsin in a village full of Dutch immigrants. Well. These people are all work like dogs. And that's the, the space in which I was enculturated. And so the worst thing you can do in a Dutch immigrant community is not work like a dog. I mean, you just work, work, work. And, and you know, there's something good about being productive and so on, but it's often divorced from the deep being on the front end. And so you just end up frazzled. You end up, you know, in this this treadmill of performance and that's been very damaging to me personally Mm -hmm. um so so it takes a lot of quite frankly theological work on the front end to get those of us who are going on a missions trip to get this because that's not this isn't part of anything in our story uh at a very practical level in addition to lots of training i wouldn't call it missions i mean i actually think that just going and being together is part of missions But given the Western understanding of what that term missions connotes, I would just call it cross-cultural learning. Uh, You might call it a vision trip. You might call it a cross-cultural fellowship trip. But I would call it something other than missions to start to reframe it for people. Mm -hmm. Because we feel guilty if we don't go and do something. Um, And we don't really understand the power of just relationship and encouragement Um, let me give you a real quick, am I talking too much? Is this not at all? Um, uh, about, um, 15 years ago, uh, the Chalmers center that I worked with was working in, uh, West Africa. And, um, I brought one of my largest financial supporters with me on a trip. Mm -hmm. And, and so in that, in that setup, it was kind of like I was the missionary bringing my donor in to see the work that he had funded, the nature of the trip as it as it unfolded is that there are all kinds of people who were trying to impress my guest with all kinds of things that weren't the Chalmers Center's work, big banks and bridges and dams, all this stuff. Well, what we were doing was really small in in, in we were helping churches, the poorest churches in the world to develop uh um savings groups they're very that people come together they save like you know 50 cents a week each or something so my friend who's a businessman his name is frank he's a businessman he loves big things he loves roads and bridges and dams and banks and and he loves all this big stuff and all week people are showing him all this stuff so at the end of the week i said frank i need you to come out to a village in a rural area to see the chalmers centers work finally he says, okay, well, I was a nervous wreck because all week he'd been seeing, you know, Disney World descends on Africa and we're going out to a village. There's going to be, you know, six people sitting under a tree, reach saving 50 cents a week. And Frank comes out to this village with me and he sits with me and the people and we get back in the, in the Jeep to, to go to the airport, to leave the country. And I looked at him, I said, Frank, what do you think? And he said, Brian, um, he says, I haven't told anybody this, but um, I'm on the board of a major foundation, and uh, we love to work in West Africa. And for 20 years, I've been praying and fasting for the gospel in West Africa. And what I just saw was the result of 20 years of my praying and fasting. What on earth? He got it. He got it. He knew why it was special. He he, He knew what good looked like. And, I mean, I was bouncing off my seat. Here's this financial supporter who spent a bucket load of money on our work. And he goes and sees this little thing and says, this is exactly what I want to see. And he came back to the States, and he's been a huge advocate for our work. Whenever I get discouraged, whenever I think, um, oh, man, what am I doing? Is anything good happening? Is I think, Okay, Frank prayed and fasted for 20 years and saw this as the fruit of that. And I start to get encouraged again. Mm-hmm. and I start to get wind in my sails again. Why? Because somebody came alongside of me and said, I believe in this. I'm with you. I'm all in. And that relationship has given me the strength I need to, to do the stuff. there's huge power in just going and loving on people and listening to what they're doing and encouraging them. It's huge, huge fuel
0: for mission. I was talking about something similar, but sort of from the the flip side of this with a group that was here recently. Uh, We're almost done with this helping build this church. And someone from the church had said to me, we've been praying since we started meeting in that living room six years ago that eventually we would have a church of our own, and you all are an answer to our prayers. Now, I have to be really careful about how I communicate that to the volunteers who has come, because I tell them as soon as you get here, no heroes got off the plane yesterday. So that's not what I mean by that. But you're in a place where, because that third dimension is so real, When they say not only have they been praying for it for six years and mean it, it also means they've been praying for it with the expectation that something's going to happen. And we are blessed to be a part of that something happening. And that's a really heady thing to be able to handle that without it being, I'm the hero. Of course, that takes some, some work. But when it's happening... To me, that's just such an affirmation that this kind of relationship, they weren't saying it in the sense of we couldn't have done this without you. What they were saying was we couldn't have done this without God having heard our prayers. There's a huge difference between those two things. There is.
2: There's so much narcissism in all of this work. It is so hard Um, But you've got it exactly right. It's it's because we together are living in the God story. He's doing the work, and we just get to go along with him in it. But we always tend to put ourselves in his role. It's really a problem.
1: But just as you said, you quoted in your book, my favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, that he gives the, the example of, we're not trying, our goal is not to get to heaven. Our goal is to bring heaven here on earth. And so by being together, creating this relationship ministry, this missions founded on relationships and being together and loving each other and seeing each other and, and becoming whole by living into our greatest authenticity with each other. God is bringing heaven here on earth through us and with us. And it's a beautiful, beautiful image.
0: Yeah, and we want well, to experience a little bit of like you started off with of the garden. I mean, that's we get a glimpse of what those perfect, uninhibited, abiding relationships between God and and the first created humans was was like. And that's that's the goal. That's it.
1: Right. Brian, thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you for all you're
2: doing and and for trying to help all of us to grow. Uh, as individuals, as a community, and and, and, and as the body of Christ. It's really great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I'm going to continue to encourage people to to read this book, and I know Ashley will too. Uh, Ashley, good to spend another morning with you. I'll see you soon. And Brian, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks,
1: guys. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table, all things are ready. Come to the feast.